0: Join host Michael G. Cartwright for searching conversations with UND faculty and staff about our common future. On June 19, 1865, word reached the community in Texas that they were free. The following year, these former slaves gathered at the AME Church in Galveston to celebrate the good news of freedom. That occasion became known as Juneteenth. This past June nineteenth, the president... Cabinet, and Provost Council challenge the campus to live into a new sense of responsibility. Our campus will continue to explore all that this might yet mean, but already we know that it entails being honest with ourselves. On June 19, 2021, the University of Indianapolis will celebrate Juneteenth. In the meantime, each month our colleague Michael will talk with members of the UND community. Join us. Juneteenth Conversations. We look forward to sharing with you there.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of Juneteenth Conversations. Today, my colleague John Kirkendall and I continue our conversation about white flight in our home state of Arkansas. In the first uh, part of our conversation, we talked about what happened in the 1960s when the Cartwright family fled from the integration of schools in Lincoln County, Arkansas, which is a rural area just south of Pine Bluff. I described the fears that I experienced as a child, and John and I discussed the ways that those fears fit with broader patterns of child development, as well as social disengagement between whites and blacks in the midst of 1960s racism. Today, our focus is on what happened after the 1965 incidents, not only to my family, but also to the people of Pine Bluff, Arkansas, where John and his family lived.
2: Thank you, Michael. The incidents you described that took place in your childhood were not isolated events, either for your family or for the communities and schools of Lincoln County, Arkansas. Although de jure segregation, legal segregation due to racism, no longer exists in the state of Arkansas and the United States more generally, the problem is still with us such as de facto. The communities of Lincoln County remain segregated by race. The divided highway still runs down the center of the county and Bayou Bartholomew still meanders through Southern Arkansas and North Central Louisiana. There are other parts to the story of Lincoln County, Arkansas. That is the location of the two prisons. Cummins is in the state. A large chunk of farmland on one side of the family is part of the prison system. As you may imagine, the prison population is also largely African-American. One of three people who live in the county are black. In 2019, the racial makeup of Lincoln County was 65% white and 33% black or African-American, with the remaining 2% largely Hispanic or Latinx. So yes, white flight has continued over the past five decades. In fact, as you know, the town of Gould no longer has a school system. This is partly odd because at one point, the community proudly proclaimed that it had been the first school system to voluntarily integrate. The population of Gould was majority African American. Over time, this community lost many of its white pillar groups that offered the mileage support to the local schools. My eventual superintendent in Pine Bluff, Charles Danny Knight, a white man, actually got his first opportunity in Gould as a teacher and superintendent. He was there during the final days of the whites being active in Gould Public Schools. He left Gould and came to Pine Bluff in the neighboring Jefferson County, the seat. Pine Bluff has begun to flourish as many African Americans began to move there from smaller Southeast Arkansas towns in Lincoln and Chico counties. On the subject of Pine Bluff, that community has had its own set of challenges over the last 25 years that could be explained by white flight. I recall growing up in a neighborhood that had white people living to my left and to my right and across the street. They were elderly people who planted themselves there for many years and didn't have a rationale to move. However, when they moved or passed on, their homes were rented out for periods of time, and eventually the neighborhood transitioned to its present state of majority Black.
1: So, John, whereas I had the experience of leaving communities behind, it sounds as if your experience of seeing your neighbors leave had a significant effect on you. Is that true?
2: That's true. When we first moved to the neighborhood on the eastern side of Pine Bluff near the Pines Mall, Broadmoor is the area, many of my elementary childhood friends were white kids whose parents were middle class and very influential in the Pine Bluff community. They served as council members, clergy, attorneys, you name it but I hardly remember them being in the neighborhood by the time I graduated high school. Many blacks were migrated to Pine Bluff. Some of my closest friends were actually from Gould, who saw a desire to move toward the Pine Bluff community as they witnessed the decline in the Gould area. So as white folks exited the neighborhood, they were replaced by African-Americans seeking prosperity in Pine Bluff. Most of the white Pine Bluff community began to position themselves on the outskirts of town I moved to smaller bedroom communities known as Whitehall. One of the first segregation academies in Arkansas was started in 1967. Whites in Lincoln County sent their children to this private school. In the community of Gould, there was bitter resentment about paying taxes and the color line was one of the primary factors in that dispute. So in 2010, 2014 years, the mayor of the town of Gould and the council made headlines for Disagreeing about whether the mayor should even meet with the citizens county in that council in that community. At one point, they passed a rule that he could not meet with any groups. This, of course, was widely seen as somewhat somewhat unconstitutional. Michael, what about the Cartwrights? Tell us the rest of your story, if you will.
1: Well, John, during the 1960s, I became more aware of racial conflict as the decade went on. My mother's family visited us a few years after we moved from Yorktown, and her older sister lived near Los Angeles. My mother's mother, sister, and brother and his family came from Washington, D.C. And on that occasion, there was a lot of social friction because of race that appears to have been prompted by news reports of the riots that had recently taken place in Detroit, Los Angeles and Washington DC. One set of angry exchanges I remember was tripped off by the use of the N word and that led to my aunt and her family leaving abruptly. In the years thereafter, whenever we visited Washington DC, we did so with the heightened awareness of matters racial. My grandmother and grandfather were one of the last white families to move out of the government funded housing project in Southeast Washington, DC. My uncle and his family lived in Bowie. The racial conflicts of Prince George's County where they lived were often the topics of discussion at family gatherings. My uncle voted for George Wallace, and it was not uncommon to hear stories of reverse racism and or reverse discrimination told as justification for the actions of my relatives who were increasingly protective of their interests and those of their children. And I of course grew up. I attended schools in rural context, several suburban contexts, and what were at the time the two largest cities in the state of Arkansas. Ultimately I attended 13 schools before I graduated from high school in Fort Smith, Arkansas from Northside Senior High School, which was the longest that I ever attended any school, two years and eight months.
2: Michael, I know that you ended up moving out of state instead of spending the greater part of your life in Arkansas where you grew up and I. Is there more to your own story?
1: Well, my life certainly has been less transient during the second half of my life. Even so, depending on the period of time that you use to find residency, I've lived in 36 to 42 different houses in my lifetime. I would like to think that I have not been fleeing from things so much as I have been moving forward with my life in positive ways. But in American culture, you and I both know we aren't always consistent in how we make that kind of distinction. Regardless of the idiosyncrasies of our family's moves, we were part of the wider migrations and mobility of the 1950s and 1960s. There's one transition in particular where matters of racial segregation played a role. When my wife and I moved our family to Indianapolis in 1996, we were going to be first time homebuyers. We initially wondered if it might be possible to purchase a home in the University Heights neighborhood where there was a limited stock of homes for sale we learned that the city of Indianapolis public schools were still subject to court order busing. We had both been raised in an environment in Arkansas in which the decision to send your children to public schools was a political statement. And the decision not to send your children to schools in the public uh, school system was often an indicator of racist attitudes. Mary and I did not want to contribute to the problems of white flight and or fright flight. Our daughter Erin was already struggling with anxiety. During the years that followed our moves, she would struggle with bullying and panic attacks. And I have a vivid memory of the day that we visited Imadon Middle School over 24 years ago when we were looking for homes in this area. I couldn't imagine our daughter Erin going to Imadon Middle School where the windows were closed and bars were across the doors. We ended up buying a home in Peary Township, not Beach Grove, which we judged to be virtually all white at that time. And we were uncomfortably aware of the fact that the neighborhood in which we'd lived had been set up within racist patterns of segregation with a covenant deed specifying that no blacks could live there. That was a covenant deed from 1945, which was uh, superseded by federal legislation Uh, in 1967. We consoled our consciences by saying that the school system was not all white because of the court-ordered busing that brought black children and youth from the northern community of Indianapolis to Perry Township. All of our children attended Abraham Lincoln Elementary School. They rode the bus most of the time, although there were times that we took them to school or picked them up. The population of African-American children who attended the schools in Perry Township was roughly 10%. The Cartwright children benefited from the positive effects of racial integration of public schools. And I would like to think that our family's participation in the public school system was net positive for blacks, indigenous, and people of color who studied alongside the Cartwright children.
2: Michael, as you know, my wife teaches here in Indianapolis in Pike Township where she attended. That has become more diverse with african-american students in the past 20 years she's noticed how demographically different the pike schools are since her sister her graduation in 94 and her time at, in 2002 there as a graduate the students she encounters from day to day are shaped by the complex forces each today where pike is now close to 75 percent african-american at the high school How do you think white flight exists today, Michael? What does it look like here in Indianapolis?
1: Well, John, I certainly do think white flight exists. And in the 21st century, I also think it's still the case that proximity matters. I would like to think that the fact that our children are persons who are not as captive to their fears as their father grew up being, although Michael and Mary Cartwright did not buy a house in center township, In the summer of 2001, we took our children to Israel and Palestine, where our family lived for the summer. We returned to the USA in August and in September 11th, the terrorist attacks occurred in New York City and Washington DC and Pennsylvania. Our children were better prepared than their peers in the south side of Indianapolis suburb where we lived as a result of having lived in the Middle East, even for a short time. Our children engaged the xenophobia of their peers in the wider community with the awareness that not all Palestinians were Muslim, not all Arabs were terrorists, and the Cartwright children became advocates for their peers in the public schools who were Muslims. Meanwhile, here in Indianapolis, white flight and fright flight has evolved in complicated patterns that are not solely defined by race, but are no less socioeconomic in segregation. In 2006, I worked with the pastor of Barnes United Methodist Church, which is one of the historically black congregations of the United Methodist Church, to bring his congregation with the congregation of uh, Greenwood United Methodist Church, a congregation that has had virtually no members who are persons of color. We brought the two congregations together for several activities, including a fellowship meal. I was fascinated to discover that almost all the membership of Barnes United Methodist Church, the historically black church, like the members of the United Methodist Congregation in Greenwood, live outside the neighborhood where the church is located, near the corner of 30th Street and Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Avenue. Um, They are either residents of uh, suburban neighborhoods in the eight uh, donut counties around Center Township or they live in one of the other townships of Marion County, but they don't live in that neighborhood. To use the sociological category that has been used to describe this pattern of daily living, uh, the members of Barnes United Methodist Church and the members of Greenwood United Methodist Church are no less religious commuters. Both congregations are composed of people who seek community in one space and live and work elsewhere. This suggests, that we are living compartmentalized lives that are defined by socioeconomic conditions, some of which are racial in nature.
2: Michael, what, if any, changes do you see?
1: Well, as many other observers have noticed, the ways that the next generation engages matters of race and gender display different patterns than was the case for baby boomers like myself. One of our children, is married to a woman who is Asian American. One of her parents was a refugee from Vietnam in the mid 1970s. The other immigrated from Hong Kong around the same time. Our children strongly identify with the Black Lives Matter and Me Too movements that have uh, been shaping our society in the past few years. The Cartwright progeny still tend to think of Indiana as largely defined by politics that are conservative, and the population is uniformly white. Increasingly, that is not the case, though, particularly in Indianapolis. The population of immigrants from Myanmar, Burma, many of which are Chin people, um, is a strong population in um, Perry Township. Recently, I was told by one of my colleagues, whose child attends the high school in Perry Township, that the boys' soccer team at Perry Meridian has more African American, Latinx and Burmese players, 16 total, than boys who are white, eight. Obviously, the demographics are changing when two thirds of the um, population of the uh, soccer team are non-white, but that's just the soccer team. Today, we own a bungalow in the University Heights neighborhood you can walk south on State Street from the Health Pavilion and you'll see black children playing in several yards. You'll see people of color of various backgrounds out walking the street with their family. When I'm working in the yard, a Latinx couple with their two children walk by and stop to talk with the neighborhood across, the neighbor across the street from us. There are Burmese and Chin folks who live nearby. And there are other homes in the University Heights neighborhood where people of color associated with Indy some of whom are international students, um, where people associated with UND live. And some of these folks would describe themselves as multiracial. Even so, as we continue to live in circumstances that are largely segregated, and the color line still remains in many parts of the city of Indianapolis, including the fact that Marshington Street remains a marker about which African Americans warn their sons and daughters about venturing south of that line. However, I would also like to think that white flight is no longer as prevalent as it was when I was a child, and that we are not driven as much by the fears of our reptilian brains as by the hopes for the common good.
2: Michael, this podcast highlighted the issues of white flight in rural Arkansas, my home for a significant period of time, and during your childhood. It's clear to me that we have more work to do to increase the awareness of living for the common good of one another and focusing on ways we can live in our communities as we come from different backgrounds. We must understand that we are more similar than we are different and learning from each other and about one another is a critical aspect of community strength and racial understanding.